Good morning, Hope. Great to see all of you. If you, as you're being seated, if you want to turn in your Bibles, I'd welcome you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 9. We also want to welcome those uh, who are listening to our service right now via our live stream. We have a number of uh, people, families that do that on a regular basis. Uh, we're glad they're able to participate with us. So Mark chapter 9, uh, we're going to continue uh, in our series uh, going through the gospel of Mark. Uh, again, Mark uh, wasn't uh, one of Jesus' disciples first. Firsthand, uh, necessarily, he hears uh, all of these stories that he records for us. Probably heard a lot more uh, than he writes down for us. But the ones he wrote down uh, here in his his account of Jesus' life, he heard uh, from Peter and some others. Uh, Peter being one of Jesus' disciples, one we'll talk about again today, who's included in a group of three. Uh, disciples that see something and experience something pretty significant um, that we'll talk about uh, more today. But as you turn there, I want to kind of set up this passage, these several verses we're going to read and learn from today by getting you to think about your ideal vacation. And I think it's appropriate uh, to even think about vacation. Uh, I know not all of us, but some of us do our vacations uh, when the weather's a little warmer. And today was a reminder that something's coming. Uh, we know it's coming a few days this week. I had to get out uh, there and scrape off my windshield. And I was like, oh, it's coming. I had to find my scraper. Like, where did I put that thing? Um, and soon I'm going to be clearing out our garage and getting ready to put the cars back in it. Because I don't believe it, but I hate wiping snow off uh, and ice off my car. So I make sure my cars fit uh, in our garage. But anyway, so I want us to think about our, your ideal vacation. We all have different... Uh, what is vacation to you? And there's no right or wrong. It's based on kind of what you or your family like to do. Some of us like to travel. We like to travel to other cities, other states. Uh, some of you have made treks out west and you uh, kind of hit all the major sites uh, along the way. And like that is vacation uh, for you. Uh, some of us, it's, it's uh, camping. I don't get this one. But, uh, you know, if that's for you, that's for you. Uh, probably because of the awful experiences we've had uh, trying to camp. Um, but, uh, you know, we just don't do that much at all as a family. Um, just talk to a, a family. They're going camping next weekend. They're like, really? But they just love it. They're going to try it and they love it. And anyway, but some of you, like, you just love that, whether it's a tent or a camper, an RV. Like, you just love being out there in, in the woods and... You love that. God bless you. Um, some of us, you know, it's staying home. You don't like all the travel and all the preparations. And, but for you, vacation is you're not going to work. You're not going to school. You're home. You maybe I'm going to get some projects done. I'm going to read a book. Uh, I'm going to do nothing. Uh, but that's vacation. For some of you, it's getting on a boat and going on a cruise and just kind of checking out some new spots uh, along the way there. Uh, and for some, and this is this will our family be in this category, it's the beach. I mean, it is you get us by the ocean and it's vacation. Um, it is, it's heaven on earth <laughs> uh, for us. And uh, we, we just love it. And it seems like uh, in, when we're there, we were there uh, earlier in the summer. Um, it, it's like time slows down and it just, it's, it's vacation. But I think we all know, as the saying goes, that every good thing must come to an end, um, that vacations, as great and amazing and hopefully restful as they are, they come to an end. And whether it's a week, a few weeks, or a long weekend, there comes a point where you have to, if you've traveled, you have to pack the car back up or the van back up, or you have to get back on an airplane, or you have to go back into what we would call real life. Now, I know we would love to stay in vacation mode. 
wouldn't we? I mean, that's, that's the longing, I think, in all of us. I don't know about you, but like when we were leaving Virginia Beach in June and beginning that wonderful 12-hour car ride back home, there was something in us, and it happens every year that we've gone, it just, there's something in me that just says, I just want to stay. And, I, and, I, and I'm, I was even reminded this past June as we were just packing up and getting ready to go, like that's even a, it's a reminder that we're not home. It's a reminder that there's this life to come that we'll be, like we'll get to stay. It'll continue. Whatever that is for you, that vacation mode, that like this is, this is life like it's meant to be, it'll keep going. And we won't have to get back into real life, so to speak. But, Right now, the time we're living, we get back into it and, and we go back into real life. And, and today, the reason I kind of set that up, that, that get us in that mindset, that feeling we've all had is I believe in a sense that's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 9 today. Now, Jesus and his disciples are not going to the beach. They're not camping. Uh, they're not going on a cruise. But in a way, they're going, they're going to experience, they're going to have what I would call a mountaintop experience. They're going to, for a short amount of time, they're going to escape or remove, hit pause button on real life. And they're going to have this literally a mountaintop experience, an experience something they've never seen. They're going to see Jesus in a way they've never seen him before. But then very quickly, they're going to step back into the valley, into real life. And life is going to come at them pretty fast. And isn't that how it goes? Like you get back from vacation on Sunday, you hit work on Monday, and Monday morning is the worst Monday morning. Like it just comes right, life comes at you fast. It, it, like school that next day is awful after a break. It's, it's the reality. It's, this is what we live in. And we're going to talk about mountaintop experiences, how they're good, and even in a way how this weekly gathering, and we'll talk about it in a few moments, how this is a, in a way a, a mountaintop. It's a, we're kind of hitting pause on the regular routine or rhythm of life, and we're gathering together then to be sent back out into real life. So I believe this text before us is, is going to help us understand how do we live life every week, every day, every month, in the valley. Because for right now, that's where we live. Most of our life is in the valley. So we're going to learn from the transfiguration of Jesus and how to live in the valley. But before we apply it, and we will apply it, I want us to go through the text so we can learn from it, set up the context of what's happening. So if you have, uh, I hope you have Mark 9 in front of you. If you don't, the verses will be up on the screen uh, so you can follow right along with us. So it starts in verse 2. We're going to start in verse 2 today. It says this, and we'll, we'll pause along the way and talk about a few of these things. It says, after six days, P, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. Let, let's pause there for a second. You might be saying, man, we didn't make it very far. Uh, <laughs> we'll get through these verses. Don't worry. So, so after six days, that, is a, that, that phrase is very unusual for Mark. Mark doesn't give us these types of uh, time frames. He, he'll usually say something like immediately. They went from here to here. Quickly, they got in a boat and went from this place to this place. It, it's, there's never a after so many days. But here in Mark, we have it. So what is he trying to communicate in, with this simple phrase? What is he trying to do? A few things. First, uh, what, he's trying to connect what took, what's going to take place in these verses we're going to learn from today with what took place previously. 
He's basically saying after six days, or, or in another way, he's saying the seventh day. So he's saying basically the same time frame as what just took place earlier in Mark chapter 8. So, so quickly what took place in Mark chapter 8, what we talked about last week was uh, Jesus asked his disciples uh, in, a, in a region called Caesarea Philippi, who do, people, who do the people say I am? And he, they answer the question. And then he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, one of his disciples, again, I believe speaking on behalf of the group, speaks up and says, you are the Christ. You are, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And, and, and in a way, I believe what, G, what Mark is doing here is he says, after six days, he's saying, this is the same time period as what just took place. But there's also a, a kind of more subverse meaning or something Mark wants us to pick up on, and especially in light of what's going to take place next, is Mark is connecting this with this time frame, and this simple phrase, after six days, an event that took place, he's connecting the dots between Mark chapter 9 and Exodus chapter 24. So we're not going to read Exodus 24, but let me just let you know what happened in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, Moses is, is leading the Israelites uh, into the promised land. He's not going to go in, but he's getting them ready to enter the promised land. And in Exodus 24, Moses and several other people make their way up to a mountain. And when Moses is up on the mountain, a cloud will envelop the mountain. In seven, for six days, it says the cloud, in Exodus 24, it says the cloud enveloped the mountain. It enveloped Moses for six days. And on the seventh day, a voice spoke. So Mark intentionally puts this after six days to catch, to have our minds catch like this event that we're going to learn about today. We, help, we understand this event in light of what took place in Exodus 24. We're going to watch a cloud. We're going to watch Jesus and a few disciples go up on a mountain. A cloud envelop them and a voice speak. Very similar to what Moses experienced in Exodus 24. We're told that Jesus didn't take the whole group, the whole team, so to speak. He only took three, three out of 12. We don't know exactly why, but he took... Peter, James, and John. These three were the first three that were called to follow Jesus. They were fishermen, and these were some of the first disciples. These were also some of the, these were also the three men, uh, disciples, that Jesus invited in to witness him raising this little girl uh, whose dad was the synagogue ruler from the dead. If you remember, that was the story I talked about a number of months ago now probably when Jairus, the synagogue ruler, came to Jesus and my daughter's dying. Can you come and do something? Jesus began making his way and the crowds were just like pressing in around him and a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, couldn't stop bleeding, just, read, just pushed through the crowd, touched the hem of his garment and she was healed in a moment. And then they have this conversation and Jairus is there and he's like, my daughter's dying. Like I was here first. But Jesus, had, he, he ministers to this woman. He shows grace and mercy to this woman. And in the midst of that conversation, Jairus learns his daughter's died. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. She will live. And, he, and they eventually make their way to the house. And Jesus doesn't take all the disciples into the house that day. He takes the parents and he takes Peter, James, and John. And they witness this, this young girl being raised from the dead. They also, these were the three, just to kind of bring these three down to earth a little bit. 
These were the three that Jesus, in the midst of, uh, after being uh, betrayed or uh, getting, re- getting ready to be arrested, he's in the garden and he's praying he, and uh, he's troubled by what's to come. And he asked these disciples, these close friends of his, would you pray with me? Pray for me. And Jesus goes off a little further in the garden from them and he leaves them behind and says, pray for me. And he comes back and they're dead asleep. And, and they can't do it. They, they're just physically exhausted and they, and they fall asleep. So why just these three? Because I'm asking the question, and maybe you are too, like if something amazing is going to happen, you would want everyone there. More people to see it, more eyes on it. But it's in, an interesting theme throughout Mark is that the greater the revelation, the smaller the crowd. The greater the revelation, at least right now, the smaller the crowd. And right now, when it's just Jesus is raising that young girl from the dead, it's just three disciples and the parents. And here, as he goes up on this mountain, it's these three. And the others are back down in the valley, literally. And we'll talk about what happens to them uh, in a moment. So here's what it says. So they, they, these uh, four make their way. And then in verse, the end of chapter, or verse 2, it says this, Then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than any, anyone in the world could bleach them. It, it, it's, um, Mark, again, is trying, based on what probably Peter told him, to describe what he was seeing. And the clothes, the garments that, that Jesus was wearing were just transformed. They became dazzling uh, before him. I want to say bedazzling, but they didn't bedazzle them. Um, he, they just goes transformed. They're white. They're whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. He's just trying to describe what's happening. And then in verse 4, it says this, and there appeared before them Elijah, Moses, uh, who were talking with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to know what they were talking about? What did Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talk about? Mark doesn't uh, tell us. We don't know if Peter and James and John didn't hear the conversation. And, um, but the, the point here is that's not the emphasis of the, the, what we, we're going to witness here. The conversation between them isn't the emphasis uh, of what we're going to learn today. Another question that comes to my mind is, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? Like they're wearing name tags? Did uh, Jesus, let me introduce you. This is Moses. This is Elijah. You've read about them. You've heard about them. I, I, somehow, we don't know exactly how, but somehow... Peter, James, and John realize, and they share with Peter shares with Mark, that Moses and Elijah. Now, why are they there? Why is it just not Jesus and the disciples and Jesus changing, being transfigured before them? Why is why are they there? There's probably a lot of different um, things we can think about, talk about as it relates to those two men being there. Where my mind goes is, I believe those two men were representative of the Old Testament. They are representative. Moses would be most represented of the law. The, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, again, Israel's first deliverer. He was one who led the Israelites out of captivity and into the promised land. So you have that. And then you have Elijah, who was a prophet. So representative of the prophets of the Old Testament. And in a way, I think them being there is, is confirming who Jesus is and in a way representing the law, the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets. In a way, I think it's saying all of what is written in the Old Testament points to Jesus. 
See, we don't throw out the Old Testament. Some people don't want to read the Old Testament or think it's valuable. I think it's very valuable to read and learn from because it lays the foundation for what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And in a way, I think them being there is representative that everything that takes place in the law and prophets in the Old Testament points and gets ready for Jesus. And then, love Peter. Peter speaks up. Peter, again, being probably the spokesman for the, the disciples, James and John say, Peter, you got to say something. We've got to do something here. So Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. This is great. Let us put up three shelters. Three tabernacles, if you will. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love this little commentary that Peter probably would have shared with Mark. This is why I said those things. It says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. There's just like that awkward fear and like maybe some silence and like, what do we do here, James and John? What you, uh, and they, they come up with this idea, let's build these three shelters, tabernacles, little homes, if you will. And I wonder too, is it, maybe it's more than just breaking the silence or doing something in the midst of great fear. I think there's a sense there when Peter says, this is good, let's stay here. Let's not go back. It's been hard down there. Let's, and even in light of what Jesus just said about earlier about, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Let's stay here up on this mountain and let us build some houses that we can, little shelters, tabernacles, that we can stay up here and let's just stay here. And it's that longing that we talked about just a little bit ago that let's stay up here on the mountain. Let's not go back into the valley. And immediately, suddenly after that exchange, in verse seven, it says, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. Just like in Exodus 24, a cloud appears and envelops them. And not just appears, but then we have a voice. And a voice, God the, this is God the Father speaking. And a voice came from the cloud and it speaks. This is the second time in Mark that we've heard God speak. It says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And immediately or suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. And then they, as quickly as they made their way up on the mountain, they're now quickly coming down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. It's similar to what he said earlier, Mark 8. Don't tell anyone about this. But he said, don't tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. What did he mean by that? And again, as they're making their way down in verse 11, it says, then they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah, who they just saw, somebody's brought back up to their mind, so they're wondering about this. Why, does the why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? So we read that and we're like, what does that even mean? And that, in this context, there was an understanding, there was a belief, that's a better way to say it. There was a belief that before the end came, before the kingdom of God fully came, before there was a restoration of all things, there was this teaching that was circulated that before that took place, Elijah had to come back. He had to come back. He had to come first. And then there would be the restoration of all things. So they're wondering, we just saw Elijah. 
the teachers of the law say this. Why does he have to come first? And Jesus, he kind of gives them some answers or answer to it. Um, in verse 12, it says this to kind of clarify their understanding. To be sure, he says, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Then why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But he says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they're like, wait, what? He has come, he says. And what they have done to him, every, and they've done to him everything they wished. Just as it was written about him. So what is Jesus saying? It's kind of code. Got to um, read between the lines, so to speak. But in a way, what Jesus is saying is Elijah has come. So Elijah did come. He lived. He was taken back up to heaven. But now what he's saying is Elijah has come. And what is he saying? He's saying Elijah has come. There was a type of Elijah that already has come. And that type of Elijah or spirit of Elijah, if you will, was John the Baptist. And he's saying he has come. Mark, earlier in Mark, gives us example after example of how Jesus connects Elijah to John the Baptist. And in a way, Jesus said he has come. He has come. And he's referring, you have to read between the lines there, but he's saying he's referring to John the Baptist. And now, as they make their way right back down from the mountain into the valley, so to speak, to use that imagery, they are confronted with the brokenness of life. So they just had this incredible moment. They want to stay there. Peter wants to stay there. But then they come down into chaos. And then they came, when they came to the other disciples, so the rest who were there, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So great, they have this moment of peace and they see Jesus and, and he's, he's dazzling in white, he's, trans, he's transfigured before them. They have this incredible, they see Moses and Elijah and now they're right back in to arguing in chaos. And as soon as they saw all the, as soon as they saw all the pe people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. And he says, what are you arguing about with, uh, what are you arguing with them about? He asked. And a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. And in a way he's saying, you weren't here. I was trying to bring you my son, but all that was left were your disciples. They couldn't really do anything. Who was here? The situation of his son, he says, who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And when it seizes him and when it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. They couldn't do this. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long will I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And then Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And we're not going to read the rest, but Jesus will set this boy free from this demon that is, um, he's possessed by. Immediately, if they come down off the mountain, they're thrust right back into the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of life, the chaos of it. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Maybe we would call a very strange story. Jesus being transfigured before them. Three of the disciples, they come back in down from the mountain, and they have this experience. What do we do? How do we learn? I think this, what this passage does for us today, friends, is it, it reminds us of the importance of those types of experiences, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but it also helps us. How do we live in the valley? Because that's where you and I spend most of our time, is down in life every day. How do we, what do we learn from this story that helps us in the midst of life and all that it throws at us? 
I think we can learn three things. First, from this passage, we learn in the midst of the valley, we listen. We listen to him. That was the, when the voice spoke, Jesus takes them up on this mountain, there's this cloud, and it's more than just the cloud. The cloud, out of the cloud, a voice speaks. It could have just been the cloud, and they would have been reminded of of the time when God led the nation of Israel in the desert by a cloud by day and a fire by night. They would have been reminded of God's presence, and they would have said, God's presence is here. God is with us on this mountain. But we not only have the cloud, we have a voice. And the voice declares this, this is my son with whom I love. And the voice says this, listen to him. I think in the immediate context, those word, that word, that phrase, listen to him, is important for the disciples because, again, Mark is connecting this story to what took place in that, uh, earlier in Mark chapter 8. And when they heard about the suffering of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, Peter stepped forward on behalf of the disciples and said, Jesus, I need to correct you on that. Like, I'm going to be the teacher, you be the student, and I'm going to teach you how the Messiah is supposed to live. And we have that moment, that gentle yet firm rebuke when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. You don't have in mind the things of God, the things of men. So, so in a way, I believe why God the Father says, this is my son whom I love. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he says, listen to him. In a way, it's saying what he has said is true. It will happen. Listen to him. But I believe for us today, obviously we sit many years later and can look back and see obviously Jesus was uh, betrayed, rejected, arrested, crucified, and rose again. So this, this idea of listen to him for us today, I think we can kind of look at it from a different angle. When we have two recordings, two, two instances in the Gospel of Mark where God speaks and we have a recorder for it. There might have been more, but we have recorded two, two instances. And the first one to me is so intriguing because it's early on in Jesus, uh, when Mark is writing, Jesus up to that point uh, in Mark chapter one has uh, grown up in the middle of nowhere. He's basically probably been raised as a carpenter under his dad's uh, uh, learning from his dad as his dad's apprentice in the carpenter shop. He has grown up in a family that is not in the headlines, is not well known. They are actually, uh, he's living in obscurity. And he comes, he goes to the Jordan River, he goes out to the wilderness where John the Baptist is baptizing people and he's baptized. And as he comes out of the water, after being baptized, we have the first recording of God speaking. And he says, this is my son with whom I love, same phrase as here in Mark 9. And in that instance, he says, with whom I'm well pleased. I'm proud of him. Think about the context of those words from a father to a son. Up to that point, Jesus, in, the, in speaking humanly, has really done nothing. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't preached any sermons. He hasn't rose and risen anyone from the dead. He hasn't multiplied bread and loaves, uh, uh, bread and fish, bread and loaves, same thing. Um, he hasn't done any of that. He's really not even known. But here, before Jesus does anything, any miracles, any teaching, the father says, I love you. And he's saying, I love you for who you are. 
He does love him for what he'll do. But first, before he does anything, he says, I love you. You are my beloved son. We live in a world, in a culture that says, go prove yourself. And then the accolades, the praise, the love will come. And it's in all aspects of our lives. But here, for us as followers of Jesus, we don't do for him to earn the love or to earn being a beloved child, a son or daughter of the king, a son or daughter of God. We don't do these things to earn, say, God, I hope I can be your beloved, but we do because we already are the beloved. And I think in the midst of the valley, in the midst of life, we have to continually be reminded and listen for those words of love and affirmation because life will come at us and it'll come at us with so many other messages that will cause you and I to wonder, am I loved? Am I worthless? Like, am I based on what I've done for people? Henry Nouwen wrote a fascinating little book called The Life of the Beloved. And it's all about understanding who we are as the beloved, a beloved child of God, first and foremost. And just one little quote from that book, he says this about listening. He says, solitude is listening to the voice, listening to the one. And I believe now we would say the voice comes through the word, the voice comes through the spirit. Uh, it speaks to us. Solitude is listening to the voice who calls us and says, you are the beloved. It is being alone with the one who says, you are my beloved and I want to be with you. He says, don't go running around. Don't uh, start to prove yourself to anybody that you are the beloved. He says, understand and embrace and rest in the reality, the truth that you already are. That's what God says to you. And here in this moment, two times, when the father has spoken, he has says, this is my son. You are my child and I love you. And those words, he needed to hear those words. And we need to hear those words. Are we listening for that voice on a regular basis in the midst of life? We listen for him. We also look for him. What do we mean by that? What do I mean by that? Look for him. Jesus takes the disciples up on the mountain. He didn't, it wasn't Peter, James, and John saying, Jesus, you know, let's get away. Let's, let's, Let's go up on this mountain. Jesus initiates this, 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 this journey up the mountain. Jesus wants them to see this. And in a way, I think he's saying, mountaintop, these types of experiences are good. They're good for the journey. They give perspective on the journey. And when Jesus is transfigured before them, that's different than masquerading. Jesus isn't putting on a costume. Like right now, the big thing in our house with our four kids is, what are they going to be for Halloween? We have four kids, one done. Young, our youngest, Elsie, is going to be an inflatable chicken. And she's been wearing this thing around the house for the last couple of weeks, and she's so proud of this inflatable chicken that she's going to be. But we're still working on the rest. But our kids and your kids and maybe you as adults, I don't know if you get into that, but, but like we, we put on costumes and you are, you are pretending to be Iron Man or the Incredible Hulk or Black Panther. I don't know, those, that's where my mind goes. But uh, you, you're pretending to be something. You're putting on a costume. Jesus on the mountain that day isn't putting on a costume. Masquerading as someone he's not. But it says he was transfigured. And what that means is what, who he is really on the inside 
came out. He was shown really for who he is. And I believe he wanted the disciples, he wanted Peter, James, and John, he wanted them to have this memory in their mind, especially as they move through the weeks ahead when Jesus is arrested, he's tortured, he's crucified, and he's put in a tomb. I believe he wanted them to have this memory, this image of him being transformed or transfigured before them to be reminded that death will not win. Even though they doubt and they're wondering what is happening, I think he wanted them to remember this is important. Look for him. Look to him. I also wonder, and again, it, this is just my thoughts about it. I can't point to scripture or chapter or verse. But I wonder, you think of Peter, and, and Peter, based on what history tells us, is Peter died a very brutal death. Peter was crucified just like Jesus was crucified, but differently. Peter, again, it's according to history, what history tells us is Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy enough to die in the same way that Jesus died. And I wonder, as Peter is going through all of that, he's arrested and his execution date is picked. And he, like Jesus, is carrying that crossbeam to the place of execution. I wonder in his mind, if he remembers back to that half an hour up on the mountaintop, remembering when Jesus was transformed, and it was a picture of this isn't the end. But there's coming a day where he's going to be glorified, and we're going to see him for who he is. And it gave Peter the courage to keep going, knowing that's not it, the end. Friends, in a way, this gathering every week, every Sunday at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock is a reminder. We pull away from the normal routine of life, the work schedule, school schedule. We pull away from normal relationships and routines. And in a way, we, we're on the mountaintop, so to speak. And we are reminded, even gathering on Sundays, why do we meet on Sunday mornings? We can meet really any day, but why right now do we meet on Sunday mornings? Because they used to meet on Saturdays. The, the day was moved to the meeting gathering of the church was kind of moved traditionally to Sundays because of the resurrection. It's a reminder every time we gather that death didn't win and it's not going to win. So in a way, this gathering week after week after week is a mountaintop to be reminded to look for him and to be reminded that he is coming back. Even on Friday, I was, uh, I was officiating a wedding and then a number of these, and as I'm standing at the front, and the bridal party's there, the groom is to my left, and his bridal party, and the bridesmaids are to my right, and then that moment comes when the bride and her dad begin to make their way down the aisle. And I've done countless weddings. But on Friday, I don't know, because of this text, and, and I was just reminded that the wed a wedding that is one of the images that it's used in the book of Revelation to describe that Jesus is the bridegroom, and he loves his bride, and he's going to come back for his bride. And there's going to be a party, and there's going to be a wedding feast when the bridegroom and the bride are united. And as I stood there before the bride and the groom, and as I gave them the vows to recite, and then through tears, this, this bride and groom could barely get through their vows to one another. I was reminded of the love that Jesus, the bridegroom, and the bride can have for one another. And I was reminded, friends, this isn't it. This isn't the end. That there's coming a day where the bridegroom will come back for the bride. 
and we will be with him and we will celebrate. We look for him. We long for him in the midst of life in the valley. We listen, we look, and then lastly, we live. We live for him. Jesus doesn't take Peter up on his offer to say, all right, Peter, get out the hammer and nails. Start building the shelters. We're staying here. But Jesus is transfigured. The voice speaks, and they quickly make their way right back down into it. And they're confronted in this situation with a dad who's desperately longing for a son to be well. The brokenness of life confronts them as they step off the mountain. And in a way, Jesus was reminding them as he sets this young man free and he goes through the rest of Mark, he's reminding them there's work to be done. There's a kingdom that is to show up. And it reminds me of when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will, God's will be done on earth here today as it is in heaven. How is he going to do that? Through you and I. Through his bride. Through the church. Not a building, but people. He's going to show his kingdom. He wants to show his kingdom through our lives, how we live. I mentioned this last week, just kind of in passing, but I thought it's even appropriate in light of this idea to live like him. I mentioned last week that uh, the, the question is, when were Christians first called Christians? And, and the first recording, recording we have of them being called Christians in the book of Acts in Antioch. And amazing things are happening in Antioch. And it has this little line. All it says is the, the Christians were first called Christians there in Antioch. That was the first time that group of people were called Christians. Now, how did they get that name? I think, and you might disagree with this, but I, I don't think it was that group, that church, that group of followers there in Antioch saying, you know what? They weren't brainstorming and saying, you know, the name right now we have to describe our movement is the way. I don't think that's going well. It doesn't seem to connect with people. Let's get some focus groups together. Let's throw out some other names and see which one sticks. Oh, Christians. We're going to go by the name Christian now. You can call us Christians. I don't, I don't think that's how it happened. I think it was the people in Antioch who were watching these people, called by the way, that's kind of their name, living and talking and caring for people and loving people the way they had heard about this man named Jesus who was called the Christ. And they looked at them and they said, we're going to, you're Christians because you're living like Christ would live. I think it's good and appropriate for us to call ourselves Christians. But I wonder if we didn't call ourselves Christians, what would people call us? What would your coworkers call you? If you didn't let them know, I go to church, I go to Hope Church, I, I am a Christian, I'm a born-again believer, I, I don't know what language you might use, but if, at school, if you told someone, or your neighbors or a family member, or like if you didn't tell them, which again, I think it's appropriate to do and we should do, but if we didn't, let's, it's just fun to think about that. What would they call you? What would they call me? What would they call us? If they looked at our Facebook timeline and the things we post, things we post on Twitter, on Instagram, what would they say about us? What would it say about Jesus? I wasn't, I never wore the bracelet, but um, it was... Um, 
kind of fad, I guess, a while ago. I, think, I see them every now and then uh, still, but the, the WWJD bracelets. Uh, it stood for what would Jesus do? Again, never uh, wore one. But I think the heart behind that, it, it, the heart behind that, the emphasis behind that, I think is a good idea. In every moment, every situation, every post, what would Jesus do here? What did Jesus do here? We could read the Bible and say, what did he do? How did he respond? Because as we're in the valley, the invitation for you and I is to live like him. Wherever we are, to show people who he is. So in a 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, 10 minutes, or maybe in five minutes, you'll be out the door. And we'll be back into life. And it'll come at us fast. It always does, doesn't it? So this week, today, as we're in the valley, we're leaving the mountaintop, take time to listen this week. Listen for the voice that wants to say, I love you. I'm proud of you. Look for him. See images, glimpses of him. In the midst of life, be reminded of that there's coming a day where he's going to return. And as we wait, we live. We live for him and show people who he is so that his kingdom comes to earth. Let me pray for us. As I pray, would you stand? And then we'll sing song in closing. So God, we just want to thank you for uh, Mark chapter 9. And I want to thank you for laying it on Peter's heart to probably share a lot of this story uh, with, with Mark. And honestly, God, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting story, strange, if you will, a little bit, uh, this story. But God, we're thankful for it today. And as we hear today in, on this kind of mountaintop, we listen, we listen to you. I'm thankful that you look at us and you say, you're my beloved. You do, love, you do love what we do for you and how we live for you, but you just love us for who we are. Help us to live in that reality. Help us to look for you. Thank you for those moments. Thank you for that wedding on Friday, just being reminded of your love for the church. And Lord, as we go from this place, would you help us? Would your spirit help us to live for you? to show people through our actions, our words, who you are. So thank you for that invitation. Thank you for these moments together. And thank you for the places we'll go beyond these walls. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.